be seated. Make your way to Genesis 42. <coughs> Come this morning to Genesis 42 in our walk through this great book of Scripture, Genesis 42. A family can be an island of tranquility and joy in the sea of worldly turbulence and spiritual sorrow. But a family can also be a sort of torture chamber in which members inflict unspeakable pain on one another. It has been said that time heals all wounds. How many of the suffering family members in this fallen world would contend that time heals nothing at all? That would be the testimony of the 49-year-old woman interviewed by the Star Tribune last week in the 1960s as her story unfolded on the front page. Her mother married a man in Oklahoma. From the age of five, her stepfather began to hurt her, and she allowed that to happen, didn't know what to do about it for some time until at age 17 she finally reported his offenses against her. He was convicted, put in prison, and then escaped and for 31 years was able to elude the authorities. He was captured by police in northern Minnesota this week, and when his stepdaughter was notified, now 49 years of age, she said, oh, I've forgotten all about that. Time heals all wounds. We know that's not what she said at all. 49 years of age now, and she says, that's good to hear. It's been a long time. Well, it had been a long time some 22 years since Joseph's jealous and vengeful brothers attacked him, ripped his tunic off of him, threw him in a dry cistern, and then sold him as a slave. 22 years. They've been eventful years for Joseph. The course of Joseph's life descended into valleys of untold misery. Yet each time God orchestrated events so that Joseph rose to unprecedented heights of success. Last week we watched in wonder as this once imprisoned slave rises to power in Egypt on one occasion and becomes the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth. People ran through the streets before Joseph's chariot. Make way! Bow down! The crowds would disperse, would split, and people would bow before his chariot. He was so important. He was on top of the world now. But what was far more significant than the wealth and the power that Joseph enjoyed was the peace of heart that God gave him in the face of past suffering. You can own the world and be eaten up inside and enjoy nothing that you have. God graciously delivered Joseph from an Egyptian dungeon, but he also graciously delivered him from the dungeon of bitterness and the specter of vengeance that binds so many who have suffered injustice at the hand of family members. Remember what he names his first child? Manasseh. Manasseh. To forget. Not forget in the sense of losing memory of it because he named his child forget and would always remember what he was forgetting, so to speak. But forget in the sense that it was all past. The grace of God had washed it clean. The offenses of his brothers he did not hold against them any longer. He could live with the past and he could smile. As we leave chapter 41, 
Joseph is a man at peace with God. He's a man at peace with his past. Grace, grace, not time, heals his wounds. Now, we, we might suspect that Jacob's sons will fade forever from the storyline at this point. We've seen that happen already, haven't we? Just think Isaac. We have Ishmael that fades from the story as Jacob is chosen. Think of uh, Jacob uh, uh, chosen over Esau. They just fade from the story. Esau fades. Ishmael fades from the storyline as these sons are born and others are chosen. We might think that will be the case now with all of the brothers of Joseph. They'll just kind of fade away from the story. But the camera now shifts in chapter 42 back to Canaan. We've not looked at this uh, family. We don't know about chapter 38, but we've not looked at this family for essentially 22 years. We don't know when the uh, Judah-Tamar account takes place in the whole scenario of things, but outside of that one account in chapter 38, it's been 22 years, but the focus turns back again to Jacob's troubled family. Time does not heal all wounds. Time does not reconcile warring families. But we learn in chapter 42 of Genesis that God can. And in this great chapter, he begins to do just that by means of the most unusual string of circumstances. In chapter 41, we have Pharaoh's dream. You remember that dream? Seven years of unprecedented abundance will be followed by seven years of torturous famine. It's Joseph's uh, interpretation of that dream that allows him to rise to power. And we get this picture then. These seven years of abundance have passed, and we're now two years into the great famine. There's a tremendous physical famine, not only in Egypt, but in the whole region. And uh, Jacob's own family is suffering from this famine. But this, fam this family continues to suffer spiritual famine as well. For 22 years, Joseph's brothers, think about this, for 22 years, they have been living to squelch the nagging whispers of conscience. And all ten of them have worked together to maintain this lie to their father, never coming clean, never telling him that they sold their own brother into slavery. Twenty-two years of this misery. And the favoritism within the family we will see also continues. Notice chapter 41, we'll just pick up there at verse 53, at the end of chapter 41, verse 53, the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe throughout Egypt, and all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. So Canaan is suffering what the rest of the region is suffering, severe famine. We look then in the first five verses of chapter 42 at the idea that Jacob sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt. The connection is now made for the first time in these some 22 years between Joseph and his offending brothers. He sends them to Egypt. Verse 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. 
you can be assured Jacob's sons knew there was grain in Egypt. You, you have a starving population. Word travels pretty quickly where the storehouses of grain are. I don't think the issue here is that Jacob is informing his sons of anything. I think he's chiding them for not doing anything about it. And you have to wonder if they weren't unnaturally hesitant to travel to Egypt. Just to go down there would rattle some old skeleton in their closets. Egypt was where Joseph might be. Now, they probably didn't figure they'd ever run into him there, but it might have given them pause just to think about going to that land. But under their father's patriarchal authority, they're compelled to do what their stomachs had been arguing with their consciences to do for some time. Go to Egypt and buy food. Verse 3. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. Notice there the subtle shift from Jacob's sons to Joseph's brothers. It's an important shift there. We're talking now about Joseph's brothers. He all of a sudden appears here in this setting in Canaan. Verse 4, But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Now as you analyze this family, as you sit down with them and get a sense of verse 4, what does that say to you? This favoritism that Jacob has shown toward Joseph has now been shifted to Benjamin. We have a picture again of the family here of, uh, of uh, Jacob uh, on the overhead here, just a, kind of a, we'll find it in there somewhere, but just to get a rem uh, reminder of who the sons are. Remember that um, Joseph and Benjamin are the sons of Rachel, of, jo of Jacob through Rachel, and Rachel is his favored wife, and so there's a favoritism that shows up throughout uh, Jacob's life as a father. It was upon Joseph. We saw that very clearly in the past, and we see now that it is upon Benjamin, Joseph's son. Now that's important to us here because this brings up the question. When Joseph, how, how will these same men treat Benjamin who has taken Joseph's place? That's a key question that we need to ask ourselves as we go through this passage. It's an ugly family situation. Jacob is not right to favor the sons of Rachel over his other sons. These other sons are his sons. And as he talks with them through this chapter, you will see at times it's almost as if they don't exist. It's almost as if he does not even see them as his true sons. It's a horrible setting. But these ten men, how will they respond to Benjamin now that Joseph is gone. Will they continue to respond with jealousy and vengeance? There's two people on trial here. Jacob does not really pass the test. He continues this path of favoritism, but how will the brothers of Joseph respond to Benjamin? Verse 5. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. As I've mentioned so many times, the Old Testament the Bible, this book in particular, never throws away words. I had to ask, why, say, why put verse 5 in there? We've already heard all of this, haven't we? The whole, there is nothing in verse 5 that is informational at all to us. Why is it there? Did you notice the phrase, so whose sons? So Israel's sons, I think is probably the reason that that is placed, that verse 5 finds itself in the text here. 
It links us back certainly to the last verse of chapter 41, the fact that there is famine. But I think the important point here is Israel. In these ten brothers, we have a prefiguring of Israel going down into Egypt. Now they will go down again, these brothers. But we have the movement of God behind the scenes to get this family into Egypt. Go back, if you will, to chapter 15 and verse 13. I think the use of the word Israel, or the name Israel, to refer to Jacob here in chapter 42, tends to take us back to chapter 15 and verse 13, where in the covenant that God cuts with Abraham, establishes with Abraham, chapter 15 and verse 13, we read, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. That's the prophecy that God gives to Abraham. An unbelievable prophecy. There's no way of explaining that away, I don't believe, outside of divine revelation, that God knows the future, and he knows what people are going to choose to do, and he knows where nations are headed and what's going to happen. But as we come back to chapter 42, this is the start of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Israel is heading down to Egypt. Now, at verses 6 and following, we're going to see Joseph meeting his brothers in Egypt. So the first scene is here in Canaan. We're now going to get down to Egypt. And if there's any question that the Bible doesn't throw words away, there isn't a word said about the trip down to Egypt. They just, boom, they're there, because that's not important. But it is important to see that it's Israel who's going down to Egypt. At verse 6 then and following, we will have two meetings between Joseph and his brothers. Verse 6, now Joseph was the governor of the land. The one who sold grain to all its people. We, we've heard that before as well, but it's established here in the text to remind us of Joseph's position because this sets up the whole interplay between him and his brothers. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Here again, we see the hand of providence. Joseph was not eating, he was not sleeping. He was not on a trip. He was not somewhere else fulfilling an administrative duty, but he was right there where they come. I don't think that Joseph physically handled every grain sale. That would have been impossible, but he oversaw those, the sale, and he probably would have been particularly interested in foreigners who were coming because they presented a challenge to the security of Egypt. So Joseph is here, and he, meet, and he sees his brothers. Picture this. These men have grown up in Canaan. They, they are not used to the setting in Egypt. And they're probably entering into a building of some splendor, an area of some splendor that would have surrounded like an aura Joseph wherever he went. They're undoubtedly awed by what they see here in Egypt. And why are they here? They really come as beggars, haven't they? They're asking, will you feed us? So the, the scene is set. Now these ten men come and they bow down with their faces to the ground before Joseph. Verse 7. As soon as Joseph saw, that's a little bit of an interpretive phrase there, as soon as, but uh, Joseph sees his brothers and he recognized them. The reason that that interpretation is there is that the, Greek, the Hebrew text would indicate that there was a, a ready recognition. So it may be a fair translation. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. 
Although Joseph recognized his brothers, he did, they did not recognize him. Now let's consider this for a moment. I'd like to just stop for a few minutes to con consider what he's doing, and then we'll move a little more quickly. But let's, let's think of this. We know the story. We've read this before. But fittingly, they did not recognize his identity. And I think there might be an, a, a, an intentional irony here. That is, they did not recognize his destiny either in chapter 37. They're always missing who Joseph is, and they miss who Joseph is here. But we can't really fault them. It's been 22 years. They don't recognize Joseph. Why? He's dressed like an Egyptian. He's groomed like an Egyptian. He would have been uh, shaved clean. Uh, and they would have had beards and, and longer hair. They, they don't recognize him because of how he is dressed and groomed, but also in their wildest imaginations, they would have never seen Joseph in this situation. He very possibly could have been wondering for some time, I wonder if my family will come down to Egypt for grain. The other thing is, is they've got one face to recognize, completely out of context. He has ten faces to study, all connected to each other. So it's been 22 years since he's seen them, but he understands who they are. We also learn in, in verse 23 that he's not speaking their language. He's, he's speaking Egyptian, so they are, they're missing the point there as well. What response might you expect from Joseph here? This is very telling of his character. If he was a man of bitterness, if he was a man of folly, he would have had a speech prepared. A 22-year practice on a venomous speech. As they walked in his presence, he could have scared the living daylights out of them right there, couldn't he? He could have done anything that he wanted. Remember, he stands as an absolute ruler, save for Pharaoh himself. He can do whatever he wants with these men. Their life is in his hand as his life once was, was in theirs. But he does not respond that way. And it's an evidence of his ability to control himself and of his great wisdom. In what appears to be a split second, Joseph decides to feign anger. He's not angry, but he pretends to be angry. The text is clear to say. Why does Joseph do this and all of the rest that he will do here? I believe that Joseph is probably thinking on his feet to some degree. Maybe he's thought through this, but that's very hard to know and, and maybe somewhat doubtful. How would he know all ten of them would show up here and what he would be able to accomplish? But he's probably thinking on his feet. He acts in order, it seems clear, to test his brothers and to discipline his brothers and ultimately to lead them to repentance and reconciliation. Now that's a, a deductive proposition. You test that as we go through. I think the text will bear that out, that he's seeking to bring them to reconciliation. Joseph is doing, and, and I'll, we'll demonstrate this later, but I think he is doing what God is doing. He's serving as a tool of God to reconcile these brothers to himself. What Joseph does here is unprecedented in Scripture, unless it would be maybe for Christ, but Joseph essentially stands in for God. And he so orchestrates the events of his brother's restoration that we can almost speak of the providence of Joseph. He's running the show. And he's doing it through means that, do not, that, that are not understood by his brothers. It's unprecedented to see a man play such a role as Joseph plays here in this section of Scripture. Nothing he does would work, of course, without the providence of God. But that takes nothing away from the brilliance of his plan. 
The key idea here as we go through is to watch this. He knows. Joseph is in the know through the entire passage. His brothers are in the dark through all of Genesis 42, and that is a critical, a crucial point of understanding. As God works through providence, Joseph sees everything, and his brothers, like us, see nothing. What did Joseph do when he interpreted Pharaoh's dream? Remember what he did? He said, here's what your dream means, and he steps forward and says, here's an administrative plan of how you should respond to this dream and what is going to take place. How does he act here? He does essentially the same thing. He sees what others cannot see, and he steps forward immediately, conceiving a plan by which to bring them face to face with their sin of selling him into slavery. Simply put, he plays his brothers, like we might put it in our day, he plays his brothers like a banjo in a remarkable display of wisdom. He is pulling the strings as if they're a puppet on the end of the line. And we get certainly here an illustration of the unique administrative capacities of Joseph. I'd like to visualize this for you here in the, the rainbow uh, picture. <laughs> we were just talking before here. We could solve all of this if we had about $8,000, put this on the, on the front. But you see here a, really a remarkable undertaking. We have here in this lower section the physical famine, which... Jacob's family is suffering here in this red area. But that is only reflective of the spiritual famine that they are suffering. There is unreconciled trouble in this family. We see Joseph's strategy overarching both of these concepts. He's dealing directly with physical famine. And if you were a reporter in the day, that's what you would see. These people are hungry. They're going to get food. Here's the visual. Here's the obvious of famine. But there's a greater issue being dealt with here, and that is the spiritual famine that this family's suffering. Joseph's strategy overarching both of these is dealing with them at the same time. Now above Joseph, of course, is God's strategy for Israel, as we looked at in chapter 15 and verse 13. Through all of what Joseph is doing with his brothers, God in his strategy is doing what? He's keeping Israel fed, but he's bringing Israel to the land of Egypt in his broader strategy for this nation. And overarching it all, of course, is the providence of God. His working through these what would appear to be mundane events and common people, some with seeming, seemingly uh, unjust purposes, that's the way that Joseph's playing this, all working to accomplish the work of God. So Joseph really, in a unique sense, stands in here as God's hand working to bring his brothers food and spiritual change. As God employs confusing and often painful providence to move us, so Joseph employs providence-type actions that touch his brother's spiritual famine. Now remember, Joseph has no idea where they are spiritually. That is one place where he is blind. He is a man. He doesn't know what is their spiritual condition. But we can see as we go through that God is working in their lives. Verse 9, then he remembered his dreams about them. Very important statement. Memory of his dreams were jostled awake by the appearance of his brothers on their, uh, uh, bowing there on their faces before him. Can you, can you think of this? Can I push you a little further on this? Genesis 40, Genesis 41, emphasized Joseph's knowledge of the future. Remember all the dreams. 
the dream of the baker, the dream of the cupbearer, the dream of Pharaoh. He's looking to the future. Genesis 42 now is going to center on Joseph's knowledge of the past. This is not prophetic in dream interpretation, but it's a knowledge going to the back, uh, uh, going back to his dream, which is itself certainly a prophecy. But he's thinking back in time, and he's seeing here that his dream is beginning to be fulfilled, the dream that pictured his brothers bowing down before him. Joseph is clearly not motivated by vengeance, but by his earlier dream. That's the important point in verse 9. He remembered his dreams about them. Not he got in touch with his anger. He vented his spleen, as the saying goes, but rather he remembered his dream. And so he acts to bring about God's purposes. How many brothers are here? Ten, right? We're missing one. What Joseph does is to work the circumstances so that we get brother number 11 before him and bowing down to him. Amazing story. Just as Joseph planned a strategy to save Egypt based on Pharaoh's dream, now he plans to save his family from physical and spiritual famine based on his earlier dreams in chapter 37. All right, we're going to move here a little more quickly. <laughs> Hang on. But all of that's set up now. We see it unfold. Verse 9, they remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you, he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. He puts the hooks into them right there. Accusing them of spies, they aren't getting away. It's over. They are going to stay under his finger now to the end of resolution because he accuses them of being a spy. Looking at the map of Israel, again, we realize that Egypt's most vulnerable location or border is the northern border. Remembering that Palestine is this land bridge from Assyria and Mesopotamia coming across the Fertile Crescent. People would all travel down through this area if they were going to Egypt. So down, uh, to the south, there's not nearly the concerns, or basically no concerns from the south militarily, but from the north, it would always, the, the, the danger would always come across the northern border. So those who are foreigners traveling into Egypt from starving countries are immediately suspect as spies. And in a situation like this, you're probably guilty until proven innocent. And we, we don't know, but Joseph could well have been doing this kind of thing routinely. And so he accuses them of being spies. It, 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 I don't know if you've ever read the text that way, because where in the world did he come up with that? How do you, why does he think they're spies all of a sudden? It's very obvious when we consider the setting that he m might uh, use this as a uh, reasonable approach. Chapter, or verse 10 then, as he picks up there, accuses them of being spies. They respond, verse 10, No, my Lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. We're brothers. Families don't spy. You don't send ten brothers to, on a dangerous mission. You wipe out the whole clan. We're brothers. We're all related to one another. We're not spies. We're honest men. It's that little... Uh, if, if we did it in today's type, you put a little smiley face there, right? We're honest men. They've been lying for 22 years to their father about, the, about what happened to their brother Joseph. But we're honest men, and on the face of things, they are honest, at least on this point. They've been unreasonable. They, here, it's an interesting connection between the two of them. They were very unreasonable when they put Joseph in that pit 
back in Canaan, and now they are facing from him a level of unreasonableness. And so I think probably to rattle them further and to uh, jog out more information from them on uh, this charge, we find Joseph continuing his ruse. Verse 12, no, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected, literally where it's naked. You've come to, to our, from our north boundary and you are wanting to see how you can steal grain from us. But they replied, verse 13, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Joseph's scheme works to perfection. They continue to maintain their innocence but now begin to offer unsolicited information. Benjamin's alive. His father is alive. This is great news to Joseph. And interestingly enough, there's one brother, they say, who is no more. They're being very honest as far as they go. Some might look at this as something of a lie because they may be saying here that he's dead, which was the story back in Canaan. So they're trying to stick with their story that the man is dead. But the same phrase is used in verse 36 of Simeon. And so it's possible that the, the, the phrase here is no more does not mean that he's dead, but basically in our, we would use the figure of speech that he's not around. He's no longer here. We, we don't know where he is. It's probably more of a nebulous idea here, but we don't know where the other one is. But they're honest enough to say that there was a Joseph. Joseph is figuring this out here as he stands before them. Verse 14, Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. Joseph once pled with his brothers for his life. And they would not heed the appeal to wisdom. Now the tables are turned and Joseph presents himself as unreasonable to them. He may even appear illogical to his brothers since producing Benjamin is not going to prove that they're not spies, but he's getting what he wants. And who can argue with him? They can't offer anything at all. You notice here that his proposal is to leave nine of the brothers in prison with one going back to fetch Benjamin. Just note that for a moment. But in verse 17, we read, and he put them all in custody for three days. He put them in, he bound them literally, and it's the same type of wording that was used when he was put in the pit, in the dungeon there in, uh, in Egypt. What is his motive here? Perhaps to rattle them further, to indicate his sincerity to them? to give them a sense certainly of what he endured as he had suffered in prison for a number of years, we don't know how many, but at least, at bare minimum, two plus years and probably longer. Though obviously here he gives them grace, he uh, treats them with grace, it's a much shorter measure in the, pr in the prison. That's his first meeting. It doesn't go so well for the brothers, does it? But they are thinking. Now in the second meeting, we have some amazing changes that begin to evidence themselves. Verse 18, in the second meeting with Joseph, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. We don't know how they took that, 
but I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, not nine, while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving household. So he, he, put, he gives them a little sense of his reasonableness, and he gives them a sense of the fact that he can, he can think and that he does have a sense of the divine realm and his responsibility there. He tones down the requirements now. I'll leave only one in prison. It's amazing what he's doing here. I don't know how he thinks of all this. I guess he's had three days to think of this part of the plan, but it's an amazing plan. Verse 20, but you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they then proceeded to do. Now watch what happens here. The brothers are sufficiently shaken. God is working and they begin to talk. Now get the picture here. Joseph's been speaking to them in Egyptian. They start, turn to each other and begin to speak in Hebrew. He's listening this whole time. They begin to talk among themselves. Verse 21, they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. 22 years ago. Pretty fresh, isn't it? We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. We're pleading with this Egyptian overseer, and he will not listen to reason there was a day we did the very same thing to our brother Joseph, and we see the connection. God is working in their hearts. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. He doesn't know that he's dead, but he, he just I think it's probably in a general sense of saying we are facing trouble. But what else is Reuben doing, obviously? He's saying very simply, I told you so. It doesn't commend him as a particularly uh, deeply charactered man. But he's saying, I told you we shouldn't have done this. Repentance, though, is beginning to take place. Joseph's brothers are having this conversation as he stands there and hears. Verse 23, they did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Obviously, Joseph's desire here is not revenge. He's pretending to be harsh and angry, but his true motive is reconciliation with his brothers. His desire is to secure their spiritual restoration. He will not receive them with open arms until he sees evidence of their repentance. As he sees evidence of a change of heart on their part, we notice in verse 24 what happens. He's deeply moved. Verse 24, he turned away from them and began to weep. I think there's a real indicator of the heart of Joseph there. He weeps when he sees a repentance brewing, a reconciliation beginning. Verse 24 goes on to say, But then turned back and spoke to them again. So he gains his composure. He turns back to them, continues to play the game. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. He wants them to see this very clearly. This man has been taken. He's been bound. Don't forget it. We don't know why he chooses Simeon. Maybe Simeon had a thing or two to learn. That could be. We do know uh, from an earlier passage and from the later prophecy of, Joseph, of Jacob that Simeon was kind of a nasty guy. So maybe uh, Joseph sees him as the right one to suffer in this way. On the other hand, some have suggested that we're, we're substituting the second son of Leah for the second son of Rachel here. 
bring Benjamin back, the second son of Rachel, and we'll deliver the second son of Leah back to you. Hard to know why he does what he does. But what is very interesting here are the parallels. What Joseph is doing, how it parallels the sin that his brothers committed against him. We have a chart here just to indicate some really unique uh, parallels that I think indicate what Joseph is doing. First of all, we see the recognition of the brother and a, and a devising of a scheme. Now, so in the brothers column, we're talking back in chapter 37 when they sell Joseph into slavery. Going across to the right, we see the same idea there with Joseph. Recognizing the brothers and coming up with this scheme. Then secondly, we have two plans. There were two plans that the brothers uh, came up with. First of all was what? Let's kill Joseph. Then they devised another plan. Let's sell him into slavery. We have two plans here in 42. He decides we'll imprison all the brothers except one, and then we'll imprison one brother and send the others back. There's a pleading for understanding. Joseph pled for understanding. We find that in these two places uh, in, in the Genesis record, and we find the brothers of Joseph then pleading with him in chapter 42. Falsely accused and imprisoned in a pit. Same thing for Joseph and does the same then with his brothers. And I say falsely accused because on the face of it, that's what's the case. He's not being honest with them. Now, we know he's playing a game. We know what he's doing. But they are falsely accused and are thrown into a dungeon in Egypt. We have one brother separated from the rest. We have that in the chapter 37 account as Joseph is separated from the others. And we have that also here, Joseph separating Simeon from his other brothers. So it's clear that, Jacob, uh, that Joseph is using means to bring his brothers to account for their sin. Now the camera shifts back to Canaan, or the journey back. And the, this time, the journey is considered because something very important happens here. Let's look now at verse 25. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain. So fill, filling the bags with grain on their donkeys to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and they left. Joseph is free to do this because he has the authority of Pharaoh to do as he chooses. But why does he do this? It's impossible to know. All that we know is that it proves highly effective in dealing with the, his brother's hearts. Verse 27, at the place where they stopped for the night, it might have taken as long as a week to get back to their area of Canaan in southern uh, Palestine. But they stopped for the night. One of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. The silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? Their hearts sank. Literally, it reads, their hearts left them. It was as if it stopped. They turned to each other, trembling. The Hebrew is they exchanged terrified glances to each other. It gives us that kind of sense. No one blames or questions this man. No one says, you stole that money. They know they have been all perfect citizens the whole time they've been in Egypt. Nobody questions that he stole it. Whatever 
Joseph intends here, though, he gets them thinking, and they realize that God is at work. Remembering again the, the uh, rainbow picture. All they're thinking about as they leave for Egypt is down here in this red section. They're just thinking about physical famine. That's the only thing on their mind. But you see where Joseph has brought them in his strategy. He's picked them out of here and he's bringing them up into these regions to see God has done this. They know God didn't just do that miraculously. They'd be jumping up and down with glee. If you go home and there's a million dollars on your table and there's a note that says from God, you're going to be quite happy. Only issue is do you turn that in for taxes or not? There's an ethical dilemma there, I guess, but I suppose you'd have to. But No, they don't think this is miraculous. They know somebody in Egypt put this in their bags. They know God, if I can say this reverently, is messing with them. He's stirring things up. He's getting them to face their past, and they know it. How does this get back here? We are in big trouble. We've got a brother in prison. Now, notice what's going on in their minds. They've got a brother back in Egypt, and it matters to them. Something's happening in their hearts. They meet Jacob as they return home, and they lay everything out pretty much on the table there before him reporting back beginning at verse 29 now you'll notice as we go through this I'll go through very quickly here but you'll notice that as they recount their journey they soften the edges notice at many places they'll soften the edges not only are they concerned about Simeon they're also now showing some compassion for their father Jacob they're being very delicate with him here Verse 29, when they came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, the man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more. And the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is Lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. You see the softening? It's, he put him in prison. But just leave him here with me. You know, we'll kind of hang out together. That's the way they're reporting it. And take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me. Slip in the hard word there. Bring your brother, youngest brother to me. So I will know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you, and you can trade in the land. You see the marginal note there. You can trade in the land. The idea is you can move about in it. You can have freedom in the land. What are they emphasizing there? Joseph said, you do this and you'll live. I'll take your life if you don't do this. They're just saying, think about the economic prosperities if we just send our brother, not your son, but our brother, Benjamin, back. So they're softening things to protect Jacob here. Verse 35, that's the report, but then as they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. They're terrified. How did this happen? Not only this one brother, but all ten of us. 
The governor of Egypt, they had come to learn, was anything but a pushover. They were in big, big trouble. They would surely be taken for thieves. And I don't know if this is genuine or not, but just a point to consider. The last time they came back without a brother, they had some extra silver in their pockets. They come back now without another one, and they're loaded with money. It undermines their defense before their father, and we'll see that he struggles with it immensely. Verse 36, and as we move into chapter 43, Lord willing, next week. Verse 36, their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. I'm deprived, literally, I'm bereaved. That is a word pertaining to the loss of children. Does this verse indicate Jacob suspects foul play with Joseph and Simeon? He uses the same word to refer to both of them. They've just told him Simeon's alive. He's fine. He's just with this man. But he uses the same word of Simeon as he uses of Joseph. It makes you wonder if there aren't some suspicions in Jacob's mind about Joseph's whereabouts. Why does he seem to blame them for Joseph's death? He's the one who sent Joseph to go find them as they were pasturing their flocks. Why does he seem to hold them accountable? And again, the phrase is no more doesn't apply to death for Simeon. It may not apply in Joseph's mind necessarily for Joseph either. We don't know. Does he suspect foul play? What we do know is that he has a very negative attitude, doesn't he? Jacob is filled with self-pity and despair. He speaks as if he knows all. Benjamin will not go to Egypt because I will lose a third son if I send him. I sent a son after you. He never came back. I sent a son with you that has not come back. I will not do this again. Benjamin is staying here. For 20-some years, he has played this scene over and over again in his mind as he dismissed Joseph to go find his brothers, and he vows never again. Everything is against me. Well, what do we learn? It's easy for us, isn't it, to judge Jacob. Come on. Lift your chin up a little bit. All is not lost. It seems lost, Jacob. Haven't you heard that? Especially when Yahweh rules the universe. Everything is a loss? No. Jacob pouts and he grumps and he despairs. And all the time, under the providence of God, Joseph reigns in Egypt. And all Jacob can do is cry in his goat's milk. Grumping. I think the words of William Cooper penned in 1774 in that great poem, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, are faithful words at this point and would have been faithful counsel to Jacob. He writes, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Oh, if Jacob could only see reality. 
Hiding behind a frowning providence was God's smiling face. All was despair and dark and hopelessness for Jacob when God knew all along that the happiest days of Jacob's life were just a few steps down the road. Jacob's not hoping in God. He's pouting. But again, we must admit to understanding. He's lost two sons. And so in his phrase, you have deprived me of children, Joseph, Simeon. Now you want Benjamin. Everything is against me. The words of Bush come in very handy here. As he says, more is said than was meant, and more was meant than was true. More was said than was meant, and more was meant than was true. Verse 37 Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. Those are noble words, huh? I don't come back, take my son's life. Jacob ignores Reuben, and Reuben comes across as a fool in the text. It may have made a little more sense in that setting than in ours to make such a promise, but Jacob ignores it and it becomes an unimportant request. Here and later, his, uh, his, or his offer rather will show itself up as being very weak in comparison with Judah's who arise in the text. Verse 38, But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If, I, if harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in Sheol, or in sorrow, down to Sheol in sorrow, down to the realm of the, of the dead in sorrow. So Jacob, we find here in chapter 22, is a man in deep despair. Years after Joseph's disappearance, Jacob is still deeply wounded by the sins of his sons, though he may not know that it's their sins. Time has brought no healing. Perhaps unbeknownst to him, verse 36, it's the sin of his sons that has caused him this deep pain. What's the need of the hour? The need is restoration. God is working on just that, to restore and stabilize and strengthen this family, to deal with this secret, to deal with this pain, to bring it out before them and to resolve it. There's an amazing thing going on here. If God's promise, just a few more moments, if you can hang with me a little longer, it's 38 verses, this is a long set stretch, I realize, appreciate your attention, but if you can just follow me here a little bit. What is necessary for God's promise to Abraham to be fulfilled? It's necessary that this line of one son, then next generation, one son, next generation, one son, come to an end. Somewhere, the people of God in the genealogical tree, it needs to fan out. It needs to include more than just one person. Is this family prepared for that? Never will they deserve it, but are they spiritually prepared for it? God is working to say, it's this family that I've chosen and this family that I'm going to change from the inside out. As far as Joseph goes, 
we could say here and what he has done to bring all of this about, my simple word is don't try this at home, all right? We don't go and try doing these kinds of things with people to get them to do what they're supposed to do, playing games and acting as if we're someone we're not and believe something we don't. But God does use Joseph and has set Joseph up, confirming that with his dreams that he is the man to bring this reconciliation about. So the big picture is 1513. God is bringing Israel down into Egypt. He will do a work with them there. The narrower picture is that God is moving to transform Jacob's family so that they are qualified through reconciliation to be the people of God. This is grace. And this is the proper end of all family crises. God has done the essential work in Joseph. No bitterness is in his heart. He's doing the work of transforming the heart of his brothers through God's grace. It's very encouraging to see verses 21 and 28. These men are coming to terms with their sin. And so we hear and learn again that time does not heal wounds, but God can. I'm glad he did not leave Jacob's family alone. God worked in their life and so he works in our life cooper's words again deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill he's taking us in picture to this deep mind shaft deep down in god's mind deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will God is working in his sovereign will in our lives through the circumstances of life. He's working to change this family, and he's working in the events of your life and mine to change us. And perhaps as we talk even very specifically about a passage such as this, brings to mind trials and struggles that you have faced, maybe things that have been left unresolved for many years in your family. Time is not going to heal anything, but grace can. And so we need, in God's mercy, to pursue reconciliation, to confess what we have done that is wrong, if need be, to challenge what has been done wrong to us. And realizing there's a lot of differences in circumstances, to realize that this is God's plan not to cover over, not to pretend away, not to hope that it will just dissipate into thin air, but to know that the goal is reconciliation within families by God's grace. That's a general principle that needs to be carefully applied. But if God is working in your life to alert you to that need in your own experience, then I plead with you, I trust in behalf of God, to deal with that to work on it, and to solve it. Shoving things under the carpet is not God's way. Reconciliation, forgiveness, and change is God's way. May we be those who follow that path to, as Cooper put it, the treasures of his bright designs working through his sovereign will in the future. Let's bow for prayer.